2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is engineering a portion of today's program and producing all of today's program. Today, we're going to talk with Rebecca Gregory. She's the author of "Taking My Life Back: My Story of Faith, Determination, and Surviving the Boston Marathon Bombing." We're also going to talk with David Brog, the director of Christians United for Israel. We're going to talk about the president's recent visit there that concludes today. We'll talk with John Zmirak. He's a senior editor of The Stream and author of a new book, Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. He is a conservative Catholic who endorsed Trump and he pins an open letter to the president suggesting tips before his big meeting Wednesday with the Pope. We'll talk with Romina Baccia. She's a leading fiscal and economic expert at the Heritage Foundation. She focuses on government spending and the national debt. We'll talk about the president's budget that was released today. And then uh, in uh, the next segment, we're going to talk about, and this is in the four o'clock hour, Steve Bucci visiting fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign and National Security Policy at the Heritage Foundation will talk about the Manchester terrorist attack that took place yesterday. All of that coming up today on The Georgine Rice Show. But first, a bit of the news. Former CIA Director John Brennan threw another log on the Trump-Russia controversy today, testifying to House lawmakers that he saw intelligence linking Moscow to people involved with President Trump's 2016 campaign. He said, and I quote, I encountered and am aware of information and intelligence that revealed contacts and interactions between Russian officials and U.S. persons involved in the Trump campaign that I was concerned about because of known Russian efforts to suborn such individuals. It raised questions in my mind about whether Russia was able to gain the cooperation of those individuals, he told members of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Well, Trump in recent days has adamantly denied any claim of collusion, which is different from what was just described, but nonetheless uh, collusion with Russia, particularly in the wake of a special counsel being named to oversee the federal Russia probe. Brennan said during the open hearing that he did not know whether Trump's campaign colluded, in quote, with Russia, but said he saw information and intelligence that was worthy of investigation. Well, that investigation will officially now move forward. Brennan's comments were made during a tense exchange with Republican Representative Trey Gowdy, who pressed the Obama-era official on what evidence he had of connection between the Trump campaign and Russian state actors. As I said, Mr. Gowdy, Mr. Brennan said, I don't do evidence. So I'm not sure what he was referring to. But the South Carolina congressman responded, I appreciate that you don't do evidence, Director Brennan. Unfortunately, that's what I do. Well, Brennan said that he could provide more information in closed session. Brennan also testified that he warned Russia's intelligence service director to stay out of the 2016 U.S. presidential elections, but that the warning was not heeded. It was clear to everyone Russia brazenly interfered and under explicit warning to to not do so, Brennan said on the Senate side, direct, the uh, director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, declined to comment on a Washington Post story that claims Trump asked him to publicly deny evidence of Russian interference. These were, again, unnamed sources. I don't feel it's appropriate to characterize uh, conversations with the president, he told the Senate Armed Services Committee. His uh, Brennan's testimony could undercut efforts by Trump and the White House to move past the Russia controversy and once again shift the spotlight to Trump's domestic uh, dilemma as he continues his first foreign trip as commander in chief. The testimony today marked the first time Brennan, CIA director under former President Barack Obama, has publicly said he was worried about Russia and its ties to the Trump campaign. It also marks his first appearance before the congressional committee since leaving the CIA when President Trump took office in January. The public hearing is also uh, the House Intelligence Committee's first since the 20th of March, when then-FBI Director James Comey testified that the bureau is investigating Russian influence and possible collusion with members of the Trump campaign. Well, since then, Trump has fired Comey. The Department of Justice has appointed a special counsel to oversee the FBI's Russian investigation, and an almost daily wave of news reports have emerged that allege the president or his advisors tried to blunt or end the FBI's investigation. Trump has strongly denied those claims. Representative uh, Devin Nunez, uh, chairman of the committee, recused himself from the panel Um, The uh, panel's Russia investigation after the House Committee on Ethics announced it was investigating him for disclosing classified information. He's a Republican out of California. Following Brennan's public testimony before House lawmakers, he will hold a closed door meeting to discuss the details. At the public hearing, Brennan said Russians are actively rooting for Democratic candidate uh, Hillary Clinton to lose and had a more favorable view towards Mr. Trump. They thought it was in their best interest. He said the animosity between Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Clintons went back years. Meanwhile, President Trump asked two of the nation's top intelligence officials in March to help him push back against an FBI investigation into possible coordination between his campaign and the Russian government. That's what The Washington Post is reporting, and according to current and former officials who are unnamed. Trump made separate appeals to the director of national intelligence, Daniel Coats, and Admiral Michael Rogers, the director of National Security Agency, urging them to publicly deny the existence of any evidence of collusion during the 2016 election. At least that's what um, former and current officials are saying who are unnamed. Coates and Rogers refused to comply with the requests, which they both deemed to be inappropriate, according to two current and uh, former um, uh, officials who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss private communications with the president which they may or may not be lawfully permitted to do. Uh, the president sought the assistance of Coates and Rogers after FBI Director James Comey told the House Intelligence Committee on the 20th of March that the FBI was investigation, uh, investigating rather the nature of any links between individuals associated with the campaign and the Russian government and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russian efforts. Trump's uh, conversation with Rogers was documented contemporaneously in an internal memo written by a senior NSA official, according to the unnamed officials. It's unclear if a similar memo was uh, prepared by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to document Trump's conversation with Coates, who earlier today declined to comment when asked directly about it. Officials said memos could be made available to the special counsel now overseeing the Russia investigation and congressional investigators who might explore whether Trump sought to impede the FBI's work. Michael Flynn invokes the Fifth Amendment, citing public frenzy, and the notification will come in a letter to the Senate Intelligence Committee expected later Monday. The person providing details spoke on condition of anonymity in order to discuss private interactions between Flynn and the committee. Again, more unnamed sources who we are told are former or current members of the intelligence community. California is a big state with nearly $200 billion in annual budget. It also has a, is a liberal state where some lawmakers want to create a universal single-payer health care system. That is, after all, what President Obama, when a senator said, was his ultimate goal. Well, today they got an estimate from the state legislative analysis or analysts of how much such a system would actually cost. That would be $400 billion every year. least to start with. This is not quite as big as the total national spending on Medicaid, which is $553 billion last year, or the Pentagon's budget for defending all 50 states and much of the world besides. That's $585 billion. But it's on the same order of magnitude. And it's a whole heck of a lot more money than exists in California's state budget currently. Now, granted, not all the money for California or California care, which is kind of an unfortunate name, but it would have to be produced from nothing. If you take all the money that California and its municipalities currently spend, some with federal help on Medicaid and health care and public health and redirect everything to this new system, that leaves you, well, 200 billion dollars short or more than 100 percent of the state budget. If you then turn around and increase taxes on all the individuals and businesses whom your plan aims to relieve of financial burdens of health care, you could conceivably get another $100 billion to $150 billion without making them spend more money on aggregate. Although one can imagine this would not be easy to redistribute fairly and there will be some big losers in the process. So in the end, the plan would create an estimated annual shortfall of uh, merely $50 billion to $100 billion or between 25 and 50 percent of the current budget. That, well, that sounds like a great way to get people to move to Texas. Again, the uh, the uh, cost of the system, this single payer health care system that not only is California considering implementing, but has been the desire of many in Washington to impose on the rest of the country would be in California, and I guess other places around the country, cost prohibitive. Up next, we're going to talk with Steve Bucci. He's a visiting fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign and National Security Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about what happened in Manchester, the terrorist attack last night.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver. Well, at least 22 people were killed last night in what British Prime Minister Theresa May called one of the worst terrorist incidents ever experienced in the United Kingdom. It took place in Manchester, and the British Prime Minister earlier today announced that the country's terror threat level has been raised to its highest level in the wake of that deadly attack, signifying that another attack may be imminent. British authorities identified the suicide bomber earlier today who launched this deadly attack at the Manchester Arena at the Ariana uh, grande concert hours after the islamic state terror group claimed responsibility for that blast the 22 year old was identified as the man who detonated the improvised explosive device at about 10:30 p.m local time on monday killing more than 20 people some of them children and injuring dozens more uh, at least 12 children were uh, under the age of 16 and injured one eight-year-old girl was among the dead this is uh the the bomber was apparently first generation british well joining us to talk about uh, this is steven uh, steve bucci he's a visiting fellow at the douglas and sarah allison center for foreign and national security policy at the heritage foundation thank you so much for joining us
3: well it's always great to be on the show georgine thanks for having me back
2: well this was another disappointing um attack and we watched it unfold last night uh, it went from the possibility of some uh, balloon uh, popping in the arena to uh, a, an event that took place outside. Now we know uh, more precisely what happened. Your thoughts on uh, the security at this event, um, where it was uh, f- it was finishing, people were leaving the arena, and apparently uh, the attack took place outside as people were exiting.
3: Well, this is a, a classic thing that, that security folks are worried about now, is that the bad guys have figured out it's hard to get into this kind of event or this kind of venue with a weapon or with bombs or anything like that because there are security guards, there are searches, there are metal detectors. So now they're looking at that next layer. Uh, in this case, when everybody's coming out, their guard is down, uh, they're all happy and, and, and just ready to go home for the night, and they, they get hit by this, this bomb. It's similar to airports You know, the the ticket lines and the parking lots are not inside the security line now, and that makes them softer targets than those more difficult ones that that are inside.
2: I know that uh, concert promoters and others who are responsible for these large gatherings are beginning to rethink uh, the security being solely focused on inside the venue. Um, Is this likely to change the way we approach these kinds of large events uh, moving forward, and does this uh, represent sort of a shift in um, the ways that we might anticipate uh, being targeted?
3: Uh, I think it, it has to change the way we look at it. If you go to a baseball game, particularly a pro game now, or a football game, they inspect bags. They, a lot of them have metal detectors. There's, there's all sorts of, of things that go on now that didn't go on prior to 9-11. So we've changed already. This is going to just continue that process. Uh, The best thing that people can do, Georgine, is they can't just depend on the police. They need to be vigilant. They need to have a plan whenever they go to a a big public space like that. What would you do with you and your family if something happened? And some people will say, gee, you're, you're telling people to be paranoid. No, I'm telling people to be prepared. And if you are well prepared and have gone through that thought process, it allows you to be a lot less paranoid than you might be otherwise, and also a lot less surprised when something terrible does happen.
2: The 22-year-old uh, who was identified as the uh, the suicide bomber was Salman Abedi. He's 22. He was born in the UK. His parents, uh, I believe, immigrated from uh, from Libya, and they're holding someone else uh, of a similar age. Uh, in connection with this as well. Do we know much uh, beyond the fact that ISIS has claimed responsibility either uh, by uh, inspiring this kind of action or just loosely uh, endorsing it? Do we know much about what uh, what lay behind this particular event? Uh,
3: we don't as yet. The, the British uh, law enforcement are, are doing the forensics, they're doing the investigations, and undoubtedly they'll, they'll come up with some triggering event or, or some change in this young man's uh, life that caused him to become radicalized and either do this on his own, just based on the propaganda, or perhaps there was a connection with uh, ISIS directly. There are a lot of ISIS fighters uh, who are originally from the UK who have now moved back there uh, after getting experience in Iraq and Syria. Uh, that's That makes the, the task of law enforcement that much more difficult. Uh, and we don't yet know what the, the full background of, of Mr. Abadi is.
2: I suppose we might take some comfort in the fact that this is the largest arena in the country. It can seat 21,000. It was uh, a well-attended concert, uh, and uh, the the bomber, uh, the suicide bomber, was unable to get into the venue, and the event uh, took place outside. Should we take some comfort in that, and does it just tell us we need to be hyper vigilant in the areas um, in and around the events that we might be attending?
3: Uh, well, it it tells us that at the very least, he he may not have tried to get in; he may have done this as part of the plan. I'd like to think that there was at least some deterrent effect uh, by the security measures they had in place that allowed him to – or forced him to choose to do the attack outside, which was less horrific than it would have been if it was inside the venue. Uh, But, yeah, this is an ongoing battle, Georgine. We have to keep at it. The good guys can't rest. There's no silver bullet to make this stop. We have to be vigilant. We have to continue – to focus all our energies at finding these guys, deterring them, and hopefully stopping them when they do get far enough to try and pull off an event uh, as quickly as possible. But it's it doesn't mean you're going to catch everybody every time,
2: unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, the U.K. Ter- terror threat level was raised too critical, uh, and uh, they signified that another attack may be imminent. Is that just a, a natural response, or does that suggest that there is intelligence suggesting there's There is, in fact, something that they're anticipating.
3: Uh, The Brits are not really alarmist kind of folks. So I don't think they would move to this level, which they've only done, like, I think three or four times in the past, uh, just for the signaling value. I I think there must be some intelligence that they've gotten, or they wouldn't take that step. I, I don't know that for sure. That's surmise on my part. But again they're they're not terribly alarmist they've got very good Intel sources uh but as they see I mean this guy was on their list, and you know they but they can't surveil everybody all mm-hmm. the time everywhere and uh and he still managed to to pull us off
2: mm. not only that, but we learned that the device was packed with shrapnel uh it was built to inflict as much human damage as possible, and this of course is uh, outside of a, a concert attended by, primarily by young people and young girls. So it's a, it's a very sad uh, example of what we're facing.
3: Well, the, these guys are not deterred or, or doesn't cause any hesitation that these were children that they were attacking. I mean, if you look at what these same kind of guys have done across Syria and Iraq, just horrific things to the babies, not just teenage children. Uh, it just, they they don't have the same standard of morality that you and I do, uh, and and they feel perfectly justified in doing this sort of thing. And, you know, they think it gives them credit with God, and it's just, it's sad to think how perverted this has become. Uh, and, and it shouldn't cause us despair. It should cause us to become that much more vigilant.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, we will certainly... Uh, take to heart that call to be vigilant as we make our way through life and don't allow this uh, sort of thing to disrupt us from the liberty and freedom that we enjoy.
3: That's right. Those things came from God, the real God, and, uh, and they will serve us, but we've got to stay faithful and, and stay in the game or, you know, you you cede it to the bad guys, and that should never happen.
2: Absolutely. Steve Bucci, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Again, uh, Steve Bucci is visiting fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign and National Security Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with Rebecca Gregory. She's the author of Taking My Life Back, My Story of Faith, Determination, and Surviving the Boston Marathon Bombing. She has written a book about not only that event that, that changed her life rather dramatically and in a very public way, but some of the events leading up to it that were equally traumatic in, um, in shaping her for the the kind of determination, survival, and faith that she writes about in her book. It's something of a, a memoir. It's uh, very moving, and I think you will uh, uh, find it encouraging. One of the things we were asked not to do was to talk about the Manchester bombing because it's very difficult for someone who has lived through a terror strike uh, to be confronted with other events that are similar in other places, whether they're across the world or someplace here at home. So we're going to talk about what happened to her in that context uh, without um, the details we've just discussed. Up next, Rebecca Gregory, Taking My Life Back. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: Jesus. Written with New York Times bestselling author Anthony Flacco, she vividly recounts her horrifying experience on that day of the Boston Marathon bombing, her desperate desire to locate her son despite the paralysis of her personal injuries, and her extensive and terrifying path to recovery, which included eighteen surgeries, sixty-five procedures, and the eventual amputation of her leg. Writing this book, she says, was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it's real, it's honest, and she shares deeply personal stories about things she hadn't fully healed from yet, but writing actually helped to bring healing. She says that she's been a victim of domestic abuse. Childhood, uh, Her childhood, rather, was marked by violence, a strong impulse to please and pacify her father's outbursts, and a formal, um, hollow relationship with God and the church. But her story, this book, tells you, Uh, the transformation that has changed everything. Well, I should mention that um, my guest, Rebecca Gregory, is a woman and a mother. She is now a powerful, motivational speaker. She encourages people all across the country with her message of faith and hope. She lives in Houston, Texas, with her son, daughter, and her college sweetheart-turned-husband, Chris Varney. She joins us today to talk about her book, Taking My Life Back. My Story of Faith, Determination, and Surviving the Boston Marathon Bombing. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor.
2: It has to be very difficult not only to recall the events of that single day, but some of the other events in your life that you refer to as a series of smaller blasts that led you to where you are today, a contented, uh, courageous woman who has survived the worst of the worst.
4: It's really difficult. Um, and it's, it, it's even more so difficult when things like, you know, what happened in Manchester yesterday and just, you know, I've, I've had a really rough day with it all because yes. people don't understand the emotional stuff that goes along with that. And so, you know, even though four years of physical recovery, it's the emotional that we still haven't healed from. And it did my heart and my prayers go out to everyone involved and just, you know our world right now it 's a scary place, but the reason why I put my story out there and why I continue to go around is to spread hope and you know show people my obstacles and my struggles and everything that i 've been through in hopes that they gain some encouragement out of it and potentially you know lead them to
2: Christ or strengthen their relationship with christ well let's let 's go back to April fifteenth and tell us about that day. You were there to cheer on a friend at the boston marathon it 's a fun event. There's lots going on. Uh, You're standing there with your very young son. Describe uh, what happened.
4: It was was my birthday weekend, my first time ever in the city of Boston. I had gone up with a group of friends because someone had qualified to run in our group, and it was just an amazing weekend. And we had caught a Red Sox game, and we had toured the city, and my five-year-old son Noah was with me. And I remember being all packed up and ready to go home right after the marathon concluded back to Texas where we lived. And um, we made our way to the 17-mile marker at first. We were holding up our homemade signs. Everybody was excited, including my son. He had this sign that he had just made, and that was a really cool thing because he had just learned how to write his own name, and he was in kindergarten. And so someone in our group said, hey, we need to make our way closer to the finish line and actually be able to see our runner cross. So everybody said that was a good idea, and we started kind of making our way to the finish line. And I just remember that I had never seen so many people in my entire life. There was like half a million people there. And so trying to make our way through this enormous crowd, and I was trying to keep up with my son. And at that time, he was getting so bored, and he was just over it. And he started pulling on my clothes and saying, Mom, Mom, when are we going to leave? And so I, when we actually did make it right there, we were in the middle of the action, right by the finish line, great view and a great spot. I said, Noah, buddy, why don't you sit down on my feet and play in the rocks like you're a scientist, even though there were no rocks, but to a five-year-old, that was cool. And that's what he did, and his back was against my shins, and that's where he was when the bomb in the backpack went off three feet behind us.
2: Uh, were you unconscious for a period of time? Were you immediately aware of what, uh, that something traumatic had happened and your first thought was for your son or how did that transpire?
4: I wasn't knocked unconscious at all. And that's what a lot of people have a hard time with. They think that because this happened, we were automatically just put to sleep essentially. And it wasn't the case. I remember everything from that day. My, my first, kind of thought was that something terrible had happened because all around me it was like a war scene. People's body parts were on the ground next to me. There were nails and BBs and ball bearing and blood all over the place. I was in a pool of my own blood, and I couldn't move anything except my head, and I couldn't see my legs. And all I wanted to know was, where was Noah? He had been sitting on my feet, and now my, my feet, I thought, were gone. You know, where where could he be? And so I, I thought I was going to die that day, but I wanted to know that my son was okay before I did.
2: Mm. Now, the subtitle of uh, or the title of your book is Taking My Life Back. And in the introduction, I quoted you as saying that it seems like uh, your entire life had been a series of smaller blasts, which is a very dramatic way of describing some of the things that you had endured before this horrific event that was very public uh, took place. Uh, describe just briefly before we go to break what you mean by the the idea that there were smaller blasts that preceded this one.
4: Oh. I mean, the majority of people aren't blown up by a bomb at a marathon, but everyone has life blow up in their face. And so before this, I feel like I was really being led and prepared to deal with Boston a little bit better. You know, you start with my childhood. I was from a, a home that appeared wonderful on the outside, and really I was the daughter of an evangelist who also was very abusive both me and my mom, and so he would go out and preach God's love and then come home and, and beat me and my mom, and I, it, from a very young age, it was very hard to discern what God's love was and what this, you know, falsehood was that I was being shown, and then there were several other instances in my life where things happened and I probably should have died or not made it out, and I did, and I look back and I can see God in every single one of those instances.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with Rebecca Gregory. She's the author of Taking My Life Back, My Story of Faith, Determination, and Surviving the Boston Marathon Bombing. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Rebecca Gregory. She's the author of Taking My Life Back, My Story of Faith, Determination, and Surviving the Boston Marathon Bombing. I mentioned that you have had 18 surgeries, 65 procedures, and eventually uh, had to have your, or chose to have your, your leg amputated. Tell us a little bit about the extent of your physical injuries and the emotional scars that Came along with that?
4: It was really difficult because I remember waking up in the hospital from a medically induced coma that they had placed me under and luckily Noah was coming to visit me and the big thing about that is because he was sitting down my feet Noah was essentially shielded from the bomb and so you know I went on to lose my leg and spend 56 days in the hospital initially and then have a year and a half of debating whether or not we were going to keep my leg and more and more surgery and more and more things that I had to do to get to a point of even being able to walk again. And Noah only had a cut to his bone on his right leg, a piece of shrapnel grazed the back of his head, and he had some GI bleeding, but he was out of the hospital in five days. And they said, had I been on the ground for a few minutes longer, I would have lost my life that day. So Mm. it's been very hard, but I still feel very blessed just to be here.
2: Now, the title of your book is Taking My Life Back. Uh, In that situation, what did you feel you needed to take back? Now, the obvious answer would be the ability to navigate with uh, with a a leg having been amputated. But your title means much more than that.
4: It does. It's... Taking my life back from everyone that's tried to steal it from me and, you know, Six months before Boston, I got held up in a Walmart parking lot and robbed at gunpoint. Um, several years before that, I got into a really horrific car accident with a deer and I should have died then too. And so I feel like you know, going back to the series of smaller blasts, it was just showing myself and everyone else that you know, these things were not going to defeat me, that they're going to make me stronger and that what those two brothers tried to destroy, they did the opposite because there's that many more people in the world ready to get rid of evil once and for all and do as much good as we can with the time that we have left. I, I feel like for 26 years of my life, I took things for granted. I expected to get out of bed and put two feet on the ground and go about my day. And when I couldn't do that anymore, my priorities shifted. And I look at life in a whole different perspective now than I ever have. And I'm just thankful for every day I get up. And, you know, me taking my life back is so much because the emotional is so hard with this and the PTSD that follows, but you know it, it's me choosing to live my life, no matter what kind of fear I have every day in my heart. Still,
2: you described your faith as a former, uh, rather formal, hollow relationship with God and the church. What changed for you, and what was the mitigating circumstance? Was it this uh, horrific, uh, violent event, or were there was there a, a series of events that led to? Uh, a deepening of your faith.
4: I think it was more a series of events, but even more than that was my mom instilling Christ and His love and, and thankfulness in me from a very early age. Because what I saw from my biological father was not, you know, something that resembled Christ. But my mom, on the other hand, was always that Christian woman who, you know, she didn't have to say anything; she just embodied. the the spirit of Christ. And so I learned everything that I know and believe from her and that just kind of strengthened through all of these different trials in my life that I've gone through. And I look back and I can, I can vividly see God in every single one of them. And I look back on the day of the bombing and I see how many people rushed towards us to try to help, not knowing if a third or a fourth or fifth bomb was going to go off, Mm -hmm. but because they wanted to help. And it's like, even in the, the chaos, God is there, and so I'm happy to say that my relationship with Christ now is stronger than it's ever been.
2: When you speak to, uh, to others and you're a motivational speaker, you have a message, what's the main thing you want your, your listeners, and in this case, your readers, to take away from a reflection on your life?
4: Just hope. Hope for a new day, because I feel like we get so caught up in all the mundane struggles and routines that we get into, and, you know, we don't, we forget to live, and that's my whole thing. It's like, you know, I can't tell anybody what they already don't know, because I don't have that to offer them. What I can do is remind people of what they do know, but they've lost sight of, and just like I said, for 26 years, I expected all of these things, and I took my legs for granted. I took my life for granted, and I don't do that anymore. I live for the moment, and it's just, so eye-opening, and I'm so thankful to be able to have the opportunity to do that. And I think that's what I try to remind people of. And, you know, all of these chapters in our lives are just that. They're chapters. And sometimes the most horrific, awful chapters will lead us to the most beautiful ones of all, if we just trust that God is always bigger than everything we're going mm-hmm. through.
2: Two years after the bombing, you returned to Boston to run part of the marathon. Why did you want to do that, and what was that experience like for you?
4: Well, I always joke around, and I say, you know, I was on the sidelines that day eating chocolate-covered pretzels, wondering why anybody runs (laughs) 26.2 miles, but I just had such an admiration for everyone that did that, and then losing my leg really showed me how much I did take for granted, and so I wanted to go back and do everything on a fake leg that I didn't do on a real leg, and It was very symbolic for me to try to run Boston because I hadn't been a runner before, but everything that they did try to destroy that day, there were people running. And I wanted to go back and honor the victims and their families and everyone that has been involved in a horrific terrorist attack And so I didn't get to run the full race because I wasn't healed enough yet. And I had gotten up to 16 miles two weeks before and then ended up busting the bottom of my leg open. But I ran the last 3.2 miles. And for me, that signified the number of months that I had not only learned how to walk again, but run again, too. And it was more about crossing the finish line. And I said that that was the day I truly took my life back.
2: Oh, that's incredible. Um, your leg protected your five-year-old son um, at the time of the bomb blast. How is Noah today, and uh, are there residual uh, impacts from that trauma in his young life?
4: Noah's doing wonderful, and time has really been on our side with that because Noah was five. And at that time, you know, he could tell you everything that went on around him. He could tell you what people were wearing that day. But as time has passed, you know, it's been four years now, and I got him into therapy very early on, and it's more of a story to him. It's not necessarily something that he has emotion with. He can tell it to you like he's telling anything else about his day. And I'm so proud of him, and he's so resilient. He's, I mean, he's my tough little cookie because he's watched me go through everything and all of the surgeries and the decision to amputate. And he's just had such a strong heart about it. And he calls me his robot mom. And mm-hmm. you know, he's learned from a very early age never to take one single moment for granted. Mm.
2: What does your life look like now? How is your your family?
4: We're in a beautiful chapter of life. I uh, married my college sweetheart a couple of years ago, and we had our beautiful daughter, Riley, And she's a miracle too, because I almost died the weekend that Riley came early, and she almost lost her life as well, but we stayed some time in the NICU, and she's doing great now. We just celebrated her first birthday, and you would never know that she had such a struggle early on, and, you know, it's, it, but it's just like, it's life. Right? And yeah. you don't know what's gonna happen. And I'm not naive to think that my life is going to be one big fairy tale from here. I suffer with PTSD on a daily basis and I have nightmares three and four nights a week where I just wake up in this cold sweat and screaming and shaking and I'm afraid to leave my house and the days like yesterday with Manchester, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm just broken because of it. And nothing about life will ever be normal. But everyone has stuff that they go through. But if you decide that you're stronger and that that's not what's going to define you, it's what you choose to do after, God does some very amazing things. And I'm so blessed and thankful for everything that I have.
2: Well, I'm so grateful that you have taken your life back and have been willing to share what has to be very difficult um, uh, with the rest of us to encourage us to persevere and to, to keep hold of what God has for us as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rebecca Gregory, thanks and have a wonderful night. Bye-bye.
4: Thank you. You too.
2: Again, the book is titled Taking My Life Back, My Story of Faith, Determination, and Surviving the Boston Marathon Bombing. It's a beautiful picture of her on the front. uh, front. She's wearing a skirt. You can see her uh, leg. Her uh, leg was amputated just below the knee. Uh, Beautiful woman, beautiful life, wonderful story. We're going to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk with David Brog, the director of Christians United for Israel. Uh, We're going to talk about the president's trip in Israel that concludes today. We'll also talk with John Zmirak, a senior editor of the stream, on the next leg of the president's trip, meeting with the Pope.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Donald Trump delivered a powerful and well-received speech to the U.S. Arab Islamic Summit in Riyadh on Sunday in which he called for the Islamic world to commit itself to the fight to end Islamic extremism. The president encouraged Muslim leaders to own the responsibility for defeating Islamic terrorism. And he pointedly challenged the religious legitimacy of radical Islam saying that every time a terrorist murders an innocent person and falsely invokes the name of God, it should be an insult to every person of faith. When well, a veiled but obvious rebuke of Obama's failed Middle East policy, he pledged that the United States would ad- adopt a foreign policy of principled realism and elaborated, saying, We will make decisions based on real world outcomes, not inflexible ideology. Well, this clear tone change from the previous eight years was welcome both for Americans frustrated by the U.S.'s lack of leadership in that region and for Middle Eastern leaders who were alarmed by President Obama's repeated. Conce- Sessions to Iran. Well, Fast forward to the first visit to Israel by uh, the President of the United States. Well, the President landed in Israel on Monday as part, as part rather of his Middle Eastern tour to reassert American leadership in the region. He made known during his campaign that Israel would be a key part of his foreign policy objectives in the Middle East, and that uh, this trip reflects that priority. Joining us to talk about the President's trip to Israel is David Brogg. He's the Director of Christians United for Israel. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Oh, thanks for having me back, Georgie.
2: First of all, let me just invite you to give us a general impression of how the president has done over the last uh, three days.
5: I think he's done a very good job. Um, He's brought the kind of clarity back that that should be obvious, but unfortunately hasn't been obvious uh, to American leaders. Um, Talk about radical Islamic terrorism. Uh, Don't excuse it. Don't deny it. Talk about it and talk about the fact that, its primary victims are decent muslims there is nothing anti-islamic in confronting the greatest Mm -hmm. threat to muslims themselves uh... then go to israel and talk about our relationship with israel and how it is firm and how it is solid and how it cannot be denied Don't give Israel's enemies hopes that they can succeed in their dark dreams of destroying Israel. Don't put daylight between the U.S. and Israel. Let Israel's enemies know that we're going to be clear in how we confront radical Islamic terror, and let them know that there is no daylight between the U.S. and Israel. They should abandon their dark dreams of destroying Israel. Maybe finally, then, they'll actually show up at the peace table willing to make some concessions.
2: One of the points the president made was that there is a common interest between the Arab uh, Islamic nations and Israel in that um, Iran is a threat to the region, and they share at least that in common. Was that an argument effectively made?
5: Yeah, I think I think it was. Um, the threat of an ascendant Iran, uh, an Iran that has recently been enriched and emboldened by uh, President Obama's Iran deal, uh, is, is the real threat to the region. The Saudis know it. The Gulf states know it. The Israelis know it. The Egyptians know it. Um, so, yeah, everyone plays this game. The Saudis play this game. The Gulf states play this game of we hate Israel, too. You know, they have domestic populations that they have to appease and show that they hate Israel. But but the threat from Iran has gotten big enough that, that all of a sudden they're willing to risk some of the uh, backlash from their own populations uh, to do what's necessary to protect themselves from Iran. So, in a sense... <laughs> Uh, Without any intention of doing so, without any foresight, without any knowledge, uh, President Obama has bungled his his way into making peace possible between Israel and its uh, Sunni Arab neighbors Mm. by uh, unleashing uh, a newly aggressive and newly enriched Iran.
2: Now, a few of the things that have uh, been raised. Uh, one, high-ranking officials in Israel are, have expressed some concern over the uh, arms deal that the president signed over the weekend in Riyadh. That's that $110 billion uh, arms deal. The Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, he views Saudi Arabia as a hostile nation and sees this arms deal as uh, troublesome for Israel's future. Your th- your thoughts on this deal that would, would benefit or profit uh, Americans, but raises some real questions for Israel. You know, it's a tough one.
5: Um, look, let's not forget, Saudi Arabia, uh, if you have an Israeli passport, you're not allowed mm-hmm. in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. If you have Israel stamped in your passport, you're not allowed in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And if you're Jewish, uh, unless you happen to be the son-in-law of the president of the United States, you're not allowed in Saudi Arabia. Let's not have any illusions about the the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, however, the Saudis are scared to death of an ascendant Iran. And the Saudis can help be part of a coalition that can try to contain uh, an aggressive Iran. And so uh, the Israelis have had to wrestle with, is it okay to run the long-term risk of arming the Saudis, who are no friends of ours, in order to address the short-term emergency of this emboldened Iran? Most of Israel leaders and most of Israel's supporters think it's, 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 it's a fair trade. Um better to address the threat of Iran now through an alliance with uh, you know a stronger Saudi Arabia um and deal with the Saudis later uh than, than to let this coalition um uh not come together, be weakened through neglect. Mm-hmm. So it's the right step to take, but it's not without risk. Yeah. And uh we always have to keep that in mind. Uh you know, they say the friend, uh, the enemy of uh, my enemy is my friend. That might be so in the short term, uh, not always in the long term. Yeah,
2: we've seen that uh, before. Now, some Israeli intelligence officials are reportedly furious over the president's decision to share with Russian officials some classified information that pertains to the Islamic State. And a common enemy of the United States and Russia, uh, according to these intelligence officials sharing the information that was uh, compromised or, or that the, the president allegedly shared with the Russians, compromised a vital source on the Islamic State and Iran. Uh, your thoughts on how serious a, a breach this may be or if that's a fair assessment of, uh, of what's being said about that allegation?
5: There's a lot being said about that allegation. You know, most official Israelis uh, who want a good relationship with President Trump are downplaying the significance of the leak and the damage it did. You read articles from unnamed sources saying the Israelis are furious and that this leak uh, not only uh, did damage to Israel's intelligence, but may well have put an Israeli agent's life at risk. Um, uh, like so many of these articles from unnamed sources, it's very hard to tell what's true and what mm-hmm. is. Um, and I think, uh, so I, I simply don't know enough to assess whether President Trump did any damage uh, or whether that information was already out there and, and, and uh, he didn't really add or, or to anyone's risk um, or didn't reveal sources and methods. Hard to say. Um, but, but whatever was done in this instance of this intelligent leak, the far more significant thing is what does President Trump do and say about Israel on an ongoing basis? And when it comes to that, I know Israel's leaders and Israel supporters are relieved uh, because the greatest threat to Israel in the region is this belief uh, among so many of Israel's enemies that they can destroy Israel. Uh, when President Obama put distance between the U.S. and Israel, it, it, it put fuel on the fire. Of this belief that Israel could be destroyed and encouraged Israel's enemies across the board. When he did the deal with Iran, he he literally put, put, put tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in the hands of the number one state sponsor Mm -hmm. of terrorism in the world. And that money ended up taking the form of missiles in the hands of Hezbollah and Hamas aimed at Israeli cities. Um, And so in the scheme of things, whatever the damage was done here, um, it's far smaller than the policies. And when it comes to the policies so far, President Trump, i um, is taking the right stand, recognizing Israel as a friend, recognizing Iran as the greatest threat. Uh, and, and that's of deeper significance.
2: Now, the president made history as the first sitting U.S. president to visit the Western Wall, Judaism's holiest site. Uh, He was very moved by that experience. And during a joint press conference that followed, the White House billed uh, this uh, conference as from Jerusalem, Israel, in a significant shift of U.S. policy. Uh, There has not been a declaration in these first few months or during this trip uh, that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. And some have expressed disappointment that that has not happened yet. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the timing of that, whether or not it's going to happen in view of the kind of negotiations that have been framed during this trip? And should people be um, skeptical, as some already are, or should we be patient?
5: Well, uh, President Trump on the campaign trail promised he would move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel's capital, Jerusalem. Uh, every other embassy in the world we have in the capital of the host country. Uh, why not Israel? Uh, He promised he would do it, and he hasn't done it. Uh, He he joins a number of other presidents uh, who on the campaign trail promised they would move our embassy to Israel's capital of Jerusalem and didn't do it, uh, including Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Um, But it's early in Trump's term. Uh, Clearly, President Trump um, wants to pursue a peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. and, uh, And he feels that if he wants to pursue this peace process, moving the embassy would get in the way. Um, okay, uh, that's fine. Uh, pursue your peace process. Uh, my bigger hope, uh, my bigger concern, is that President Trump will learn from the history of the peace process. Um, you know, five times over the over, over the decades, Israel's offered the Palestinians a state of their own on the West Bank, Gaza, half of Jerusalem, Arab East Jerusalem. Uh, five times, the Palestinians have turned it down, and, and, and two most recent offers were in 2000 and 2008. This is hardly ancient history. And very often when the Palestinians turn these offers down, they turn them down quite violently. And so my hope is that President Trump is not going to come back to the table and try to force the Israelis to do, make the sixth offer of a Palestinian state. There's a deeper issue here. Uh, the, problem, the reason why there isn't peace in the Middle East isn't because the Israelis haven't offered. It's because the Palestinians keep turning it down. And why do they keep turning it down? Because ultimately they haven't reconciled themselves to the existence of Israel as a Jewish state in any size, shape, or form in their region. And so I think President Trump, if he wants peace, needs to confront that, that the fundamental barrier to peace. The Palestinian rejectionism, refusal to recognize Israel's right to exist, refusal to compromise with Israel. If he'll take that on and make the Palestinians understand that there's no peace and no process until they recognize Israel's right to exist and stop funding terror against Israel, yeah, there's some hope. Uh, but if he goes down the same old path that every other president's gone down and just pressures the Israelis, uh, I just think we're going to see the, a replay of of, of past pal- Israeli offers met with Palestinian rejections. And my prayer would be that this Palestinian rejection will come in the form of words and not in the form of suicide bombs like prior rejections.
2: Yes. David Brogg, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me, Georgie.
2: Appreciate it very much. Again, David Brogg is the director of Christians United for Israel. Up next, we're going to talk with John Zmirak. He's a senior editor of The Stream and author of the new Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. He's a conservative Catholic who endorsed Donald Trump, and he's penned an open letter to the president suggesting some tips before his big meeting on Wednesday with the Pope that's coming up next right here on the Georgine Rice Show
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 21 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you know, President Trump is set to meet with the Pope Francis uh, tomorrow. And my next guest says that Trump may make the mistake of believing this one pope's policy opinion, opinions rather bind a billion Catholics. That would be wrong, he writes. The critical issue where Trump differs with Pope Francis is immigration. Trump is right and Francis is wrong. Well, joining us to talk about that is John Smirak. He's senior editor of The Stream and author of the new Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. He describes himself as a conservative Catholic. He endorsed Trump and uh, pins this open letter to advise the president uh, as he meets with the Pope. Thank you so much for joining us again.
6: Thank you. Um, Yeah, I wrote this piece because uh, there's a completely false idea being put out that the Catholic Church supports open borders. This is not the case. Uh, Let me read you the the following paragraph from the official catechism of the Catholic Church, which binds everyone, including the Pope. Okay? Political authorities, for the sake of the common good for which they are responsible, may make the exercise of the right to immigrate to immigrate subject to various judicial conditions, especially with regard to the immigrant's duties towards their country of adoption. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, to obey its laws and to assist in carrying civic burdens, to obey its laws. they right there by the very language of the Catholic Catechism. People who come here illegally don't have the right to stay. That's in the black letters, not even in the fine print of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That is what binds Catholics. That is the official teaching of the Church. You're not going to hear that from Pope Francis. And you're not going to hear it from most American bishops.
2: But the Pope is obliged yeah. to, uh, to abide by that, that rule. Yeah. He, he, the Pope has no more power to change the Church's 2,000 year old teaching
6: on things then the president can change the Constitution by executive order. The Pope is not able to, like, add a fourth person to the Blessed Trinity. He's not allowed—he can't make abortion okay just because he decides to, and he can't make socialism okay the way his Pope seems to want to, and he can't say that the Catholic Church teaches open borders, because it never taught it before. And the Catholic Church has to be inconsistent with itself, you know? If one pope teaches X and another pope teaches the exact opposite, and they did it at the highest level, that would discredit the Church completely. This is not like the U.S. Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court can just overturn a precedent and it's all okay. Because we're talking here about eternal truth, about the truth that the Church says it brings to us from Jesus, via the Apostles and the Bishops. It's supposed to be consistent with itself, through all 2,000 years. The Church never taught open borders in the past, so it doesn't have the power to teach it now.
2: One of the things that you warn the President against is ceding to the Pope the moral high ground on the subject of immigration. What is your fear that the President might do uh, in the face of the the, the Pope? Well, I'm a, I, I, I mean, in theory, if he could take
6: uh, Francis seriously and see, okay, you're the voice of what's right and good and true and noble, but you know what? I have to be a gritty pragmatist and say this, you know, that's all fine and dandy in theory, but in the real world, that doesn't work. And, and I, I, I'm taking a kind of a cynical, selfish position on behalf of America, and I'm doing it with kind of a bad conscience. That's not accurate. You could, You should support border control and national sovereignty with a clear conscience. It is the Christian thing to do. Christians are supposed to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, if controlling the borders of your country doesn't belong to the government, what does? Jesus himself said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. It is not for the Catholic Church to decide that U.S. immigration laws are wrong, and we are going to help people violate them. But, as I point out in the article, 17 American bishops came out with a state—no, sorry— 24, Twenty-four American mm-hmm. bishops came out with a statement, inclu- and along with Cardinal Peter Churchson, one of the highest-placed cardinals in the Catholic Church. They came out with a statement in 2017 called The Message from Modesto. Look it up. And it called on Catholic churches to hide illegal immigrants, to help them evade the law. That is absolutely outrageous. It's not in accord with Catholic Church teaching, it's a, and it's an attack on U.S. sovereignty. And I ho- hope President Trump calls the Pope on it and says, why is one of your cardinals, one of the highest-ranked officials in the Catholic Church, calling on American Catholics to violate American law, law that was passed democratically, law that doesn't discriminate, it's not unfair, it says there are certain numbers of immigrants we're going to accept every year, and anybody above that number, we're not going to take, that's perfectly fair, What, what right do you have to do that? but Pope Francis is hysterical, literally hysterical on this issue. And You write in the article
2: that the U.S. Catholic bishops have an institutional self-interest in promoting immigration from Latin America uh, and that they are addicted to it for survival. Comment on that just a bit.
6: Sure, sure. Catholic bishops in America have one job, to pass along the Catholic faith and try to spread it to more people. They are failing at that one job. According to the Pew study in 2015, 41% Four out of ten people raised Catholic in America officially leave for another church or no church at all, 41%. And you know what percentage of Catholics today in America are immigrants from Latin America? 22%, one out of five. So, if you took away that twenty two percent if the if we were not accepting millions of of Catholics from Latin America where the church by the way, is stronger and it, it does a better job of teaching teaching the faith, we weren't taking those people sort of sucking them off from Mexico and and Central America, draining the churches there of people and bringing them to America. the Catholic Church would be shrinking by forty one percent we would be go- we would be disappearing the way the Episcopal and the liberal Methodists and the liberal Presbyterians all the other mainline Protestant churches and in so many ways American Catholic bishops and colleges and increasingly Pope Francis sound like mainline Protestants of the kind that are dying off.
2: Mm. Um, you write that the person with less money at the moment isn't always in the right, or else we'd have to side with every shoplifter against every store owner or every illegal immigrant against the citizen of any country. Uh, you you offer a defense of Catholic social teaching um, that, that does not comport with what we've been hearing some of these bishops and certainly the Pope uh, saying of late. That's right.
6: They're using Catholic social teaching as a slogan for just left-wing policies that could have lifted from the Democratic platform and just put wholesale into the church bulletin. The only issues on which they, they seem to diverge from the Democrats are the ones where they have absolutely no choice, like abortion and same-sex marriage. And even there, they talk a lot less about protecting the religious liberty of Christians, especially Christian store, florists and wedding photographers and all those family businesses that are being targeted by the gay lobbies. They don't talk about that very much. They don't talk about abortion very much. They talk about immigration. And why? Because immigration is what keeps their churches from shrinking by 40%. Imagine how much less political influence they would have if their church, if it was known, it was obvious that the American Catholic Church was in rapid decline, which it is under their leadership. Furthermore, those immigrants who come in, they tend to leave at the same rate as native-born Catholics. So it's not like they're going to solve the problem. They're just warming the pews for a few years before they get disgusted at the lukewarm Catholicism presented to them in American parishes, and they go find a Protestant church or just wander off into secularism. So I, 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 in another article, I called them theological cannon fodder. If you remember World War I, the generals had no idea what they were doing. They were just throwing men into the barbed wire, into the machine guns, and they were getting killed, and they were just calling for more men, more men, more men. Millions of people died because of the the incompetence of those generals. And the American Catholic bishops are acting just like that now with the salvation of Catholics.
2: Quick question. Are you optimistic about the meeting with the president that he will stand firm? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful.
6: I hope Steve Bannon is whispering in his ear.
2: (laughs) Well, Jim Zmirak, I appreciated the column and appreciate your joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. Again, John Zmirak is senior editor of The Stream and author of the New Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism and describes himself as a conservative Catholic. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today the president, although he's out of the country, rolled out his first uh, budget proposal as president. And it's a bold plan. It includes a path to balance the federal budget in 10 years, an increase in military and defense spending, and a paid family leave proposal, $1.7 trillion in cuts to entitlements. Well, the Trump administration... Uh, Will respect taxpayers, balance the budget, return the country to 3% economic growth, and push a parental leave re- uh, requirement in its fiscal plan to be released uh, today, according to the budget director, uh, Mick. Mulvaney. Well, here to talk with us about the president's budget is Romina Bacha. She is a leading fiscal and economic expert at the Heritage Foundation. She focuses on government spending and national debt. Thanks so much for joining us.
7: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, this is the president's first uh, plan, and of course, the opponents of the president have already begun howling and have been since uh, before it was actually uh, fully released. Let me ask you, first of all, your general impression of the president's plan
7: the focus on putting in place policies like regulatory and tax policies that will elevate um, economic growth in the united states is the right focus because more growth means better opportunities for workers for businesses and that's good for the entire country the the focus also on uh, balancing the budget in 10 years that's an important goal that all fiscal conservatives should strive for including the congressional budget committees when their budgets will follow uh, next month.
2: Now um, Mulvaney said that he called this uh, the, the taxpayers' first budget. What did he mean by that in terms of how they address um, entitlements, for example?
7: So the budget uh, makes some cuts to mandatory spending programs, uh, none of them to Medicare or Social Security, which we usually think of as the big entitlement programs. But they're all focused on Medicaid, uh, welfare programs and certain corporate subsidies, uh, including in the ag space agriculture I mean here, and um, that um, those cuts are um, they 're needed, uh, but they also help restore the fundamental balance between the state and the federal government. We are, after all a nation uh, built on federalism that has been in decline, and by cutting the federal role in various areas. Um, states will be encouraged to fill in the gaps. Those are functions that were previously usurped by the federal government. They were initially state functions, and they should go back to the states.
2: Um, the uh, Office of Management and Budget Director uh, said that this budget was written through the eyes of the people paying for the budget, not the eyes of those who are getting paid. Is there a, a significant difference, a dramatic shift in the approach to this budget, and is that a fair assessment of what they at least attempted to do?
7: Um, it's some of that, I think, is very much reflected in the budget. But overall, I must say that in order to have sustainable budget balance that doesn't rely on gimmicks or economic growth projections that are quite optimistic, you do need to do um, big entitlement reform. and Medicaid certainly is an important start, but Medicare is much larger. Medicare and Social Security alone consume 40 percent of the budget. And um, in Medicare in particular, you have very rapid rising health costs. Um, Plus, you still have uh, large taxpayer subsidies. It's not, in fact, true that the payroll tax pays for all of Medicare. It only pays for about 15 percent the rest comes from general revenues. And so that is an area where I think the president could have included stronger proposals to um, build fiscal uh, credibility. Um, There are um, some areas where they rely very heavily on economic growth to provide tax cuts without revenue reductions, and also to reduce the deficits such that they achieve balance. I think uh, more focused on these other programs like Medicare and Social Security um, is needed to have um, a sustainable um, long-term balance.
2: Well, you're you're absolutely right. Much of the budget policies are are tied to creating 3% growth uh, contingent on achieving that goal, which may or may not happen. And it also, it seems to me, is contingent on um, uh, tax reform, on... um, uh, 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 eliminating um, Obamacare and replacing it with, with something else. So there are other elements that aren't a part of the budget and don't relate specifically to um, uh, economic growth uh, within this uh, this framework, but other elements that are yet to uh, to be passed or embraced by Congress. So one
7: element is that in um, at the end of this fiscal year, um, on September 30th, the federal government will once again be faced with the decision how much to fund domestic agencies and programs and how much to fund national defense. The president's budget clearly uh, prioritizes national defense. It would add an additional $54 billion in base budget authority in 2018 alone, and it would uh, make up for those increases uh, with cuts in domestic discretionary spending. In fact, uh, the Hill put out a list, uh, the Hill magazine, of the 66 programs that the president's budget would entirely eliminate. But this is, again, something that ultimately lies with Congress. Congress um, makes the budget. Congress is primarily, primarily responsible for funding the federal government. Um, and so um, they have been much more reluctant to consider such steep cuts. And so the worry, of course, there is that ultimately the political compromise will center around increasing defense spending and either keeping domestic spending flat rather than cutting it or increasing that as well. Um, So we'll have to see how those political dynamics play out. But the approach of prioritizing defense and paying for it with cuts in domestic spending that shouldn't be handled by the federal government to begin with is the right approach.
2: The uh, Republicans who are defending the president's plan say that we're look, we look to spending differently. We're not going to measure compassion by the number of programs or people in them. Uh, it's a, The budget is called a new foundation for American greatness. Um, your thoughts on how effective this is, at least as a first step uh, toward balancing the budget over the next 10 years and righting the ship of state? So
7: I think some of those... Th- There is actually a lot of compassion in this budget in that the welfare reforms are squarely centered on work requirements, asking those who uh, need benefits to do something in exchange to be actively seeking for employment, and while they are unable to work, um, to engage in, uh, say, community service activities in exchange for the benefits received. That was something that worked uh, fairly well in Maine. Once those requirements were instituted, um, the roles dropped precipitously, which tells us that there are quite a few individuals on those roles that receive the benefit now and that it's questionable if they really need it, If they, because if they did, you would think they'd be willing to do something for that. So the budget takes those principles and implements them on the welfare side it also proposes to experiment with some, some policy changes in the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. Today, um, one in five Americans is on the disability program. That number is much too high, and the, um, the president's budget uh, rightfully suggests that there might be some people on the program that have temporary or marginal respons- uh, 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 disabilities, which we know of that perhaps would be better served with a temporary benefit or more incentives to help them return to work. This is something that Congress considered last year. A bill was introduced this year as well. So many of the reforms aren't about cutting people off from welfare programs, but rather encouraging them to return to work and build a path towards self-sufficiency, which I think is a conservative, compassionate approach to welfare programs.
2: Absolutely. Now, the president's budget uh, typically... Uh, is sort of a blueprint uh, that is considered by Congress. Is there strong support for this budget? I'm hearing some Republicans uh, critical of, for example, defense spending as being insufficient. Um, is there broad support uh, that we're hearing, particularly from Republicans, but from Congress in general?
7: Yes. So the, um, the defense Spending increases in President Trump's budget do uh, begin the rebuilding of our military readiness. I would say in a significant way, but certainly there are some that would like to see larger increases. But the 54 billion increase isn't all um, that, that they're getting. There's also additional overseas contingency funds, which is uh, dedicated specifically to war-related efforts. Um, overall, I think the balance that they strike when it comes to funding defense versus uh, reducing the deficit is. An appropriate balance. There are some reforms that we could make to reduce our procurement costs, to reduce uh, also certain military entitlements that are eating up the military budget. Um, Those are proposals that um, we look forward to working with the administration on going forward that would also free up funds within the defense budget to uh, go towards investments and military red- readiness and upgrading equipment, which is so sorely needed. Um, overall, I do think that the, the, that direction um, is supported. However, as you can imagine, Democrats would also like to see spending increases for their programs.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a, a, a raucous debate, I'm certain, as we uh, uh, watch what happens there. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us. I always appreciate your input.
7: Thank you so much.
2: Again, Romina Abacha is a leading fiscal and economic expert at the Heritage Foundation. By the way, if you'd like to read more and study on your own, you can go to DailySignal.com, where they offer a, an analysis, what's in Trump's taxpayers' first federal budget, as they're referring to it. You can also go to Heritage.org, and you'll find a commentary on budget and spending that analyzes the, uh, the Trump budget item by item. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow is our annual partnership with Food for the Poor and we are going to focus on Food for a Year, Water for Life for children in the Caribbean and in Latin America. We're looking at uh, providing for a year food for every individual child that's a part of this program that's been uh, set aside for uh, for this program and to provide a water source that will last beyond that year. We're looking at about 310 children in the Caribbean and in Latin America. Uh, that will be our focus for the next couple of days. We'll do some other things as well, but uh, t- tomorrow our primary focus will be on uh, that. We're going to be focusing on Haiti, and if you're unaware, Uh, Hurricane Matthew back in October devastated that country once again. It seems to be a recurring story that that country in our hemisphere, the poorest in our hemisphere, is continually rocked by uh, by tragedy. The most recent, the Hurricane uh, Matthew, last October the 4th, 2016. Well, the hurricane, of course, has come and gone. There's always devastation that follows. But now there is drought in the country. And that means that food production is down. It's, they're not capable of uh, producing what little uh, food that they had previously. And when you're talking about Haiti, that makes the situation even more serious. So we're going to be giving you an opportunity to focus uh, your giving on feeding children in these uh, these very poor areas, in the Caribbean and in Latin America. So we're looking forward to that. And I'd like to encourage you to check out kpdq.com. We'll have information that will uh, appear periodically uh, on uh, this effort. Uh, there'll be images and some video and other things for you to, to check out. You can also find that at um the Georgine Rice show facebook page so i would encourage you to uh, to take full advantage of the opportunity to consider how many children's lives you can transform and while that may sound like something of an overstatement that's literally what we're talking about an opportunity to change the course the trajectory of a child's life whether they're in Haiti or Guatemala um your giving is going to shift the direction their life will take. And again, we're focusing on about 310 of them, and I'm hoping you can help to support one or two of them uh, in our effort tomorrow. Again, you can go to kpdq.com. You can look for the Food for the Poor link there, and you can learn more about our efforts. You can also uh, go to their webpage and check out uh, what Food for the Poor is doing um, more generally. Also, I want to remind you that now is the time to register as an individual to have a group chosen for you or to register as a foursome for the upcoming Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. Such a fun event. We invite all area pastors to our annual Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. This year, we're going to be uh, at the beautiful Langdon Farms Golf Club in Aurora. That's just south of Wilsonville on Monday, July the 24th. Now, check-in starts at about 6.30 a.m. with a delicious breakfast and coffee, pastries and so on, provided by Elkabee's Coffee Shop and Tea House. And you can tee off beginning at 8. 18 holes of golf will be followed by a delicious lunch. The cost to attend is just $20. And if you golf... You know, that's a great deal. Uh, space is limited, though, so please register today. You can also choose your team by registering up to four players at once. So if you and your elders want to play, if there's some pastors who know one another, but you never have the opportunity to hang out together, this is a great opportunity to put together your own team. If you want to come as an individual, we will hook you up with other uh, area pastors so you can meet some uh, some new faces uh, some new folks as well. The deadline to register is Friday, July the 24th, uh, 21st rather, at 5 p.m. or until all the spots are filled. So it's a great time for you to to do that. If you're not a pastor, then sure be sure to tell your pastor to visit kpdq.com and register today. Again, spots are limited, and we would encourage you to sign up today. Once again, that's going to be the Pastors Masters Golf Tournament Friday, July the 21st. Um, And uh, it's going to be – actually, that's the sign-up. Monday, July the 24th, is the actual golf tournament. So check that out at kpdq.com for more details. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today, James Blind for engineering a portion of today's program and producing all of it. I hope you'll make plans to join us for the Food for the Poor Radiothon tomorrow and uh, partially into Thursday as well. We're, we're going to focus our attention on the plight of children in Latin America and in the Caribbean who really are, are destitute. They are desperately in need of outside help, and unless we come alongside them, uh, I, I don't even want to think about what uh, what will happen. I've been to both of the areas that we're going to be focusing on, and I've seen the desperation there. So I know we're not just talking about theoretical things. We're talking about real individuals. And as I as I talk about this uh, and about food for the poor, I, I see real faces, children I met, children I held, I spoke with, and that very vivid recollection uh, compels me to want to encourage you to begin praying even now to consider. Um, sponsoring a child for the course of a year, so that they can have food for a full year, just like you and I, food every day and water for life now this is water that um, there 's no danger of making them uh, less well it 's safe drinking water it 's clean potable uh, potable water so that 's going to be our focus, and I hope you will make every effort to join us and to do what you can to help meet the needs of these uh, of these amazing children who are created in god 's image who are known by him by name. And um, the fact that he's given us the opportunity to come alongside him in his work and to extend the love of Christ to make a difference in their lives is a, a real privilege on our half, our be, uh, behalf, well, on his behalf, but uh, on our end. Um, so that's going to be our focus. I hope you will join us here tomorrow from 4 to 6. And really throughout the day here on KPDQ, you're going to be hearing about this effort with Food for the Poor. Okay, we are out of time. Have a great night. Uh, spend a little time out in the sunshine if you can. I know I intend to do the same. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ